In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Oh, man. One billion Americans white paper contest. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein, who is back from vacation, tanned, rested, ready. And I wanted to make him talk about first the Veep Stakes, uh, which we discussed previously on the show, uh, but has changed, um, I think, since our discussion. Kamala Harris is still very much in contention. Uh, but I think a lot of the other people we talked about have slipped somewhat, at least in the rumor mongering. And two other people who we didn't talk about have really rocketed up. Uh, Susan Rice, who was national security advisor and UN ambassador under President Obama and is not, I I don't think Susan Rice is that well-known a public figure, but like journalists, like people who covered the Obama administration, at least like know all about her. Um, And Karen Bass, a House member from California, who I will admit I had only the vaguest idea who she was until she came up in the Veep Stakes. Um, as just a California guy, maybe maybe knows her better. Um, I'm thrilled at two out of three of the Veep Stake finalists being Californians. Yeah, it's a critical swing state. Um, <laughs> very, very logical that Democrats would be focusing on that. So, you know, I mean, I think we, we talked already about sort of like general philosophy of Veeping. But like, what do you, what do you think about these contenders? So this is why Matt, I think, alluded a little bit to some resistance to this conversation. And it's mostly because I love like speculating about beep stakes, but the information about it is bad. And so I say everything like the like like the Internet rationalist, like epistemic status, like low confidence here. So my sense of what I'm reading in the reporting and what my own reporting is showing is that Kamala Harris should probably be understood as the front runner. Susan Rice is there with her and Karen Bass has fallen a little bit, um, in part because of vetting issues. So there was a clip rocketing around where she was praising Scientology because they had opened up uh, a center in her district. There's some stuff about her in Cuba. None of it is really that bad and maybe it's not going to knock her out, but it's just the kind of thing that a politician who's like a good like local politician who did not think they'd be in a VP um, contention might do. Uh, whereas like ambitious long-term politicians who are thinking about themselves as potential presidents are, are a little more careful on. So my sense is her star has fallen a little bit, though that could change. The Harris-Rice contention is interesting because my understanding of it is basically that Joe Biden would pick Susan Rice if it were just up to him. He likes Susan Rice from the Obama administration. Biden's heart is in foreign policy. Obviously, Susan Rice is a foreign policy person. When you ask Joe Biden questions, he defaults to talking about foreign policy. I was on a call with him the other day, and he got asked a question about racial equity, and he began by talking about how racism in America makes America look bad on the world stage. Um, He thinks very frontally about America's leadership in, in the world. He's very concerned about what Donald Trump has done to that. And so I think he likes Susan Rice a lot. The issue is Susan Rice 
the main thing people know her for, quite unfairly, is the Megazi talking points issue. Beyond that, she's just not known that well. She has not ever run for anything. And so it's just like it's a it's a real gamble of a pick in terms of campaigning. Whereas Kamala Harris, who I don't think Biden and even his team like as much, is understood to be a very competent campaigner, has been vetted in the sense of being able to be under the spotlight um, in a national campaign ticks a lot of good boxes for them, you know, is well-liked in the Senate. And so, like, Kamala Harris is the one they think they should go with, and Susan Rice is the one that, on some level, uh, I think Joe Biden's heart is with. I think that's right. I also think that this whole selection, at least how it's been framed for the, the public, has been a little bit, uh, not just a little bit, but actually, like, a lot misguided. Some I, I guess you call them Biden allies or Chris Dodd um, and people who know Chris Dodd have, I think, really poisoned the waters around this dialogue by being quite public in their hostility to Harris in, I would say, pretty blatantly sexist terms that like she's too ambitious and she wasn't respectful enough uh, to, to Biden during the campaign. Well, I she, think the line was she didn't show remorse for attacking him. Yeah, and... It, Which was a weird line, given that it was a campaign. Right, and like those are just not good reasons, right? If you accept the contrary premise, which seems very prevalent among Democratic Party campaign operatives, particularly the, the younger cohort of them than, like, the Chris Dodds of the world, that Kamala Harris is this, like, very talented, charismatic, dynamic politician, um, then there's absolutely no reason to hold against her the fact that she's clearly ambitious for higher office or that she said mean things about her opponent while in an election, uh, because that's actually what you want, right? Like, I, I think you, you, I mean, you want a VP who, you know, whose ideas you think are good, uh, but there's no huge ideological void between Biden and Harris. Uh, and you want a VP who will be hardworking and tough and good at politics. And, you know, all the like obvious concerns about Susan Rice are that like, what if she has to lead the Democratic Party? Like, does she have any experience or, or ability with that? At the same time, I'm just not sure it's true that Kamala Harris is such a skilled or appealing or charismatic politician. I mean, her her record is fine. I don't have any big problem with her. Uh, but like her campaign was really bad, I thought, like just looking at it. And it it reflected, it seemed to me, both a lack of a natural base for her. There was nobody really except for uh Democratic Party staffers who was like super hyped about Kamala Harris. Uh, she made weird tactical choices. Uh, she got very few votes. And it just like it, it makes me wonder, like, why did we give up on the idea of a swing state governor like Gretchen Whitmer, who has won tough races? How did it come down to Harris as like the political pick and then Rice as this slightly um, I mean, I get it on rice, right? It's it's not just that um, that Biden cares about foreign policy, but like literally, he knows Susan Rice. Like they worked together in the Obama administration for a long time. Uh, Biden is very old. He needs a vice president who is substantially younger than he is. Uh, but there aren't a lot of people of that age cohort who he has actually worked with in, in the same way that that he has rice. But like. The fact that she's not a politician at all just seems like a huge red flag. Uh, but then, like, I, I just I, I don't quite get how the field got this narrow. It seems based on a on a false premise about Kamala Harris's uh, appeal to the electorate. So I, I want to move this a little bit because I could speculate on how it got that narrow, but I don't know how useful that speculation would be. <laughs> right. But 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 to the case for and against some of the some of the front runners here. Let me talk about Susan Rice a little bit more on the merits. And, and I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts here because I'm a little bit less of a foreign policy guy than you are. You 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 wrote a book on you wrote a book on foreign policy. You've covered these issues over time more closely than, than I have. I said in our last Veep Stakes conversation that the most important thing in a vice president is that the president actually trusts them. Because a vice president who is let into the room, who is considered a serious advisor, like that really matters. And it is continuously the case 
that the president, and for that matter, on some level, the vice president, even more so, they just have a lot more running room on foreign policy um, than they do on on, on legislative policy. Like what's really going to matter for whether or not Joe Biden gets his agenda passed is whether or not Chuck Schumer is majority leader and how many votes Nancy Pelosi actually has under control. Whether you pick Karen Bass or Kamala Harris or Susan Rice really doesn't matter there. Whereas in some of the things that I think Joe Biden like wants to do when he sits awake thinking about his presidency at night, which is like rebuilding international agreements, rebuilding American leadership in the world, I think he would really trust Susan Rice as his emissary there. Right. He would really like imbue her with a lot of authority that he may not trust Kamala Harris with. He may not trust Karen Bass with, not because he wouldn't like them, but just because that, you know, he Biden in every interview he's ever given about these issues, like he puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that he knows the names of every world leader. And like, so does Susan Rice. And so to the extent of that is how Biden thinks about things in terms of international relationships, like renegotiating us into the Paris Climate Agreement, things like that. I think he would give her a, a, a lot of power. The counter question there is like, what do you actually think of Susan Rice as a foreign policy thinker? Um, and it that's a little bit of a trickier idea than one might imagine, given how high level her roles have been, because she served in the Obama administration, ultimately serving out President Obama's foreign policy, was also, of course, responsible for crafting it. But but across the many roles she's had in Democratic-aligned foreign policy politics, and she helped create a big, I think it was a CNAS report, you know, or, or before the Obama administration. It, it's all very kind of conventional, like America should lead in a multilateral world, but it very much backs up Joe Biden's somewhat conventional foreign policy. Whereas I thought one of the um, one of the real strengths of the Bernie Sanders campaign or some of the other campaigns in the Democratic Party was uh, was like really questioning where the Democratic Party has been on foreign policy over the years. Uh, so, for instance, Susan Rice was uh, appears to be, from what we know, have been um, pro the Libyan intervention, which I don't think is considered to have turned out that well. She's known for being regretful about what happened in Rwanda, about the degree to which the Clinton administration, which she was part of, did not respond when she was there. So I don't know, I don't have a good sense of what Susan Rice's great foreign policy triumphs are. And so while I, the affirmative case for me is that Biden respects her and trusts her, in terms of the affirmative case of Susan Rice being the person who is crafting foreign policy for America, which could be the case if she becomes president, for all that that's like the selling point for her, I don't feel like I fully understand what that would look like if she were um, empowered to do it herself. Yeah, and this is why podcasts are good because you know I had the idea a little while back. I was like, okay, I'm gonna revisit what I remember, and I'm gonna get in touch with some people, and I'm gonna I'm gonna report this out, and I'm gonna like explain what Susan Rice believes or where she stands, you know, relative to the Democratic Party. And what I came up with is pretty um, unsatisfactory and just didn't make for a good article. But here we can we can talk about it in words like like human beings. Uh, but you know, one person who worked with her for a while told me that she is enigmatic. Another person who follows this stuff very closely from a left wing perspective, I was just trying to ask him, like, you know, is she of the mainstream establishment people? Would she say she's like better than average or worse than average from your point of view? And he told me, no, she's exactly average. And, you know, she has this interesting profile, which is she worked for Bill Clinton's administration at a relatively low level. She she was very young then, but, you know, important jobs for a, a successful, smart, well-regarded person, but not at the at the top level. And then she was out of office, you know, as people were because George W. Bush was president. And when Howard Dean started to catch fire um, as a, you know, an anti-war candidate, um, he clearly needed some foreign policy advisors because he was like, you know, he was the governor of this small state. He was a medical doctor. He's not really a foreign policy guy, but the whole point of his campaign was that the Iraq war was a mistake. And so Susan Rice was probably the highest profile person who signed on to his campaign from, from the national security world. And there was a big risk with her. You know, there was a real impulse toward solidarity among Democratic Party foreign, foreign policy pros to say, like, we, we, we shouldn't break the seal on this. We shouldn't say, like, we all fucked up by, by backing Bush here. Uh, but she did. 
then 2008, the Obama-Hillary uh, Clinton race on foreign policy had a similar dynamic, and she was a prominent Obama person. And, you know, had Hillary Clinton won that primary and become president, I think Susan Rice's career in foreign policy uh, would be over. But Obama won, and he made her UN ambassador, which is a traditional way station to becoming Secretary of State. Then... The feeling was she was unconfirmable as Secretary of State uh, because of um, Benghazi and, and some other things. And she became National Security Advisor, which is not the highest status job in foreign policy, but it's the one where you were in the room with the President of the United States a lot, right? She was the person who Obama wanted to work with. He wanted to bounce ideas off her, and he saw her as good at being an honest broker, you know, who would represent what different people's thoughts were and help him make decisions about things. I think there was a lot of frustration uh, in terms of, like, how do we characterize the Obama doctrine, right? There was, like, the famous thing where he said, like, let's not do dumb shit, um, you know, which, like, it looks good compared to doing dumb shit, but doesn't have a ton of theoretical heft to it. And Rice, to the best of my knowledge, reflects that. Uh, not that, you know, her idea carried the way in every step of the Obama administration, but the whole thing of like intervening in Libya, then feeling a little chastened by that, and then not intervening in Syria, and being, you know, kind of dovish on Russia, then getting more hawkish after they invaded Crimea, but not as hawkish as the Republicans were. And then, you know, the whole 2016 election happened, and and maybe that didn't work out right. Uh, but, you know, it's just like trying to be measured, not have a drastic revision of America's role in the world, but also not have this grandiose kind of vision of it. Her book, you know, was an interesting memoir of like, life in Washington and foreign policy, but I think is not a great, like, theoretical tome, right, on, on international relations theory. She's a very experienced at the political aspects of foreign policy, though, like working on campaigns. She she staffed Michael Dukakis way back in 1988, which all sort of makes her well-suited to the vice... For someone who seems unsuited to the vice presidency, she's better suited than you might think. She like knows a lot about politics. She literally grew up in Washington, D.C. with parents who worked in, in, in government and politics. But I couldn't give you like a great two paragraph summary of like, this is what she's all about. Nor could I really about Biden, right? Who like- I was going to say that it, as you're describing that, it's just like, that's how I described Joe Biden too. Right, exactly. So, Not literally in terms of being a staffer, because obviously he's been a principal for a lot of it. But but functionally, what Joe Biden has been is like, he is at the center of the Democratic Party and always has been. Yes. And Rice is more like, I think she was on the left of the Democratic Party and the party has moved closer to where, to where she is and to where she stands, uh, which is totally reasonable sort of track record and and background uh, for, for, for a VP. But I mean, it's weird, right? I mean, it, it goes back to Biden, who, as you say, um, Biden really cares about foreign policy, but it's not super obvious what the Biden doctrine itself is exactly, other than like on the highest level that we should be sort of more high-toned and decent and care about alliances than Trump. It's weird, right? The, the idea of a foreign policy-centric pick by a foreign policy-centric president or, or presidential nominee in which it's difficult to characterize what their foreign policy is seems odd to me, but possibly where we would land on this. But but I think it reflects Biden generally. And in a funny way, I think it also reflects the Kamala Harris option. This is an argument I've made in a couple of pieces, but I think something very distinctive about Biden as a candidate is it he is running as if he is the leader in a parliamentary system. He is running very much as a party leader. He does not represent a sharply ideological faction in the fight. To the degree he was coded as a moderate, when he won, he didn't say, ha-ha, the moderates control the party now. He said, okay, we're going to create a bunch of task forces with the Bernie Sanders people and come together around a, a, a Big Tent coalition. And 
in the same way that Joe Biden himself has always just been in the center of the Democratic Party, working closely with like every faction of the Democratic Party establishment, to the degree that is like somewhat true for Susan Rice, who has been, you know, in the center of the Democratic Party, working at least with big parts of the Democratic Party establishment, though obviously took a side in the aftermath of the Iraq war. Um, Kamala Harris has some of that quality as well. Uh, I One thing that I found difficult on the Harris in covering the Harris campaign, as it goes all the way back, if you go and read her announcement speech, is it? it was never clear to me what it was about exactly. I don't think they ever defined that at all. I don't think she ever had a definition of that. At the same time, a lot of her policies were really good. She came out with the LIFT Act, which was a, an, an earned income tax credit expansion. It's a really good policy. The way she got to her ultimate healthcare plan was bad. It was like a lot of fumbling around, and they did this sort of 10-year cost gimmick, which didn't make any sense. But the final healthcare plan was pretty good. I mean, it was an interesting way of actually expanding what Medicare truly is, which is a public-centered program with a private option inside of it and making that the entire system. It was actually a pretty clever synthesis, which reflect her working with, I think, pretty smart um, health policy experts inside the Democratic Party coalition. She's, you know, well-liked in the Senate. It's unclear what she has a very liberal voting record, but both because of her past as a prosecutor and because of the way she positions herself, she's not understood primarily as a factional liberal. Um, she is like understood as somebody who is, you know, will vote with with the liberal Democrats, but um, but but kind of goes back and forth on on individual issues. So again, a little bit like Biden, she brings together different parts of the party inside of her. That's true for Susan Rice. It's true um, in a different way, actually, for Karen Bass. And it just, people talk about the Democratic Party establishment. And that can mean many different things. To some degree, the party establishment reflects whoever the president is. So even though Barack Obama, Barack Obama was already was always a little bit more of an establishment figure quickly than he admitted. Like when he came in, he took a bunch of Dashiell and Gephardt staffers, so staffers from the congressional leaders into his own office. And he was he in some ways represented the congressional wing against the Clintonite wing, which is always a, a very interesting factional and internal battle. But but he was very much an establishment figure. But he also represented pretty distinct breaks on certain issues like the Iraq war. Joe Biden, just in everything he is doing, um, in who he is thinking about picking for VP and how he's conducted his own campaign, just like truly seems to be, seems to represent this idea that the Democratic Party is a big tent. He wants kind of like everybody, like even vaguely inside of it to feel reasonably welcome there. And he is intent on picking people who are just going to help him work with the Democratic Party as it exists today, be that its House structure, its Senate structure, its foreign policy structure. He wants people who can make overtures to other parts of the party, but won't offend parts of the party by being chosen. In a way, it is distinctive in how undistinctive it is. Like to what you were just saying about a foreign policy pick who doesn't have a clear view, who doesn't represent a clear foreign policy vision. Like, I just think that reflects the Biden candidacy all the way around. And in some ways, I think it is a quite honest way of running for president. Like it is in fact the case that the president has to work with their foreign policy establishment or spend a lot of time fighting it. It is, in fact, the case the president on legislation is going to have to work with the the congressional establishment and will have to bow to what the congressional establishment ultimately wants. And so for Biden to just like from the ground up build his administration that way and make it very clear that like what Joe Biden thinks is a little bit subordinate to what the Democratic Party thinks and Joe Biden is going to act broadly as a vessel, making some tweaks and changes on the margins to to what that is or what he thinks that is. Like, that is really how his administration is going to work. And it is just funny how much it is a, a break from the Trump administration, where Trump, like, simultaneously comes in as his challenge to the party he is seeking to lead, but also is very lazy and disinterested. So just outsources huge amounts of policy to the party he supposedly beat. And so his entire administration is this very weird mishmash. Whereas, you know, I think Joe Biden is just creating an integrated party structure from the beginning. And everybody he's considering just reflects that in one way or another. But here, here is where I do think that Harris and Biden contrast in a way that's important for, for campaigning, right? Which is that if you think about Biden's primary, he was he was the Twitter is not real life candidate. 
He was the candidate whose constituency was old people, people without college degrees, whose outreach to African-Americans involved churches and like old bulls from the Congressional Black Caucus. And Harris was all the way on the other side of that, I think. Like she had the most extremely online campaign of anybody who was was out there and with the exception of maybe Julian Castro was the one who was most plugged into I don't want to say it I I don't want to use pejorative words but to the like tendency to take radical academic concepts about race and gender identity import them through highly educated young media and congressional staff people and and put them out and this this Michigas with Chris Dodd is very emblematic of that right like this is like literally super old guys who both don't care that what they're saying plays as sexist and also seem to not actually know that it's counterproductive, that it's going to cause people to rally around Harris. Whereas Harris is a mastermind of executing exactly that sort of rally, right? Like professional women and the sense of being punished for ambition and that she is a, is a vehicle for this, right? Like she's very skilled at playing in that niche, which has served her incredibly well at rising to the top of California statewide politics, which is, it's fucking hard because I, I, like how many of you live in California? It's like 80 billion people, right? And you still just have two senators. Uh, so it's, it's really, really- <laughs> it's it, a shame. It, no, right. But so it's it's so hard to become a statewide elected Democrat in California, but you don't need to beat Republicans. I don't. I, I'm going to interrupt you here just because that yeah. was not her strategy in California. I mean, to everything you're saying, I think there's something to do. I don't buy I don't actually buy this interpretation as much. She had a pretty online staff and did do some of what you're talking about. But I think her candidacy didn't actually part of the problem for a candidacy was it never represented any one thing. It wasn't even fully bought in on that. But part but also part of the tensions in it were when she rose up in California, she didn't act that way at all. And so that's where all the stuff of like Kamala Harris is a cop. I mean, she in some ways in her California incarnation was a very democratic establishment. Like you know, a, a reformer as a prosecutor, but still quite tough on crime. She was good friends with Bo Biden, um, uh, Joe Biden's son. They were both attorney generals at the same time. The politics she was operating in in California were like I would call them like a like an early aughts politics, right? It wasn't that she wasn't a liberal because California's a liberal place, and so she was. But it reflected a lot of the more traditional ideas about which parts of liberalism are unpopular. Ideas that Joe Biden agrees with. And part of why the, the Harris-Biden um, like conflict of that early debate was painful for Biden personally is he felt he and Harris had like a, a, a special bond because Harris and Bo Biden were so close. But one reason Harris and Bo Biden were so close is they were both like they were both attorney generals representing the same kind of like mainstream liberal tendencies mm. at the same time. So I, I'm a little bit less bought in in, in 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 your argument here. I'm not saying that wasn't reflected somewhat in her campaign, but both in her Senate um, incarnation and as an attorney general, like she's risen up um, by like kind of understanding what her jobs are at the time she has them. I think actually her campaign was a place where she was at least able to do that as, as president. She comes to the Senate in 2016, and there's a lot of hype around her from the beginning for a variety of reasons, but she's able to not collapse under that. And she does a pretty good job in hearings. She she does a bunch of different things that are able to make her somebody who's a credible presidential candidate really just a couple of years later. And she runs a reasonably credible campaign. I mean, she drops out somewhat early, but I think in a... In a it, because of a clear eyed sense she wasn't going to win. She was still doing better, say, when she dropped out than even, say, Cory Booker was or some other people who stayed in quite a bit longer. So there's some real skill there. But the the question of like how she would integrate with a Biden operation is, I think, a pretty open one. All right. Let's uh, let's take a break. Let's talk about let's talk about our serious topic. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So something that I've been tracking for the past couple of months and thinking a lot about is that in a way that people predicted, but I think is still worthy of note, Donald Trump's anti-democratic, semi-strongman tendencies are coming out in a more and more clear way as he falls in the polls. And there are a bunch of different pieces of this, but a lot of it put together is genuinely scary, even if he's not, even if he doesn't have the popularity or the institutional support to to, to really drive it home. So, I mean, you have, for instance, the dispatch of federal agents to operate in reasonably violent ways against protesters, um, and clearly in part to create a conflict Donald Trump hoped he would profit from. It doesn't appear to have worked out that way. But what they were doing in Portland, the idea of also going to Chicago and other places, I mean, Donald Trump was hoping the protests and like the quote unquote anarchy that came from them would catapult his issues, like his grievances, his cultural conflicts back to the front of American politics. It didn't work out for him. So then he like tried to reestablish it by using the government and basically government stormtroopers to get another kind of conflict. Genuinely scary, I think. The tweet, which he pinned to the top of his account for uh, some part of a day that, you know, we should delay the election. That was something that, you know, people laughed at Joe Biden for saying Donald Trump would suggest. And then, of course, Joe Biden, I'm sorry, Donald Trump suggested it. Um, He got pretty decisively smacked down by the Republican Party there Um, in his own administration. His chief of staff said it wouldn't happen. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House leader, said it wouldn't happen. Lindsey Graham said it shouldn't happen. I mean, it, it didn't. It was a trial balloon that failed. But it was a trial balloon. Like the president of the United States really did say, let's just delay the election. All the attacks on vote by mail, which could lead to a very scary period. Like, let's say Donald Trump successfully demonizes voting by mail among his party. And so it's Democrats who vote by mail. So when 
when the election is counted up on election day, Donald Trump is leading because Democrats are overwhelmingly not getting coronavirus by voting by mail. So it takes a week to see that they won, um, even potentially quite decisively. We saw this in 2018, for instance. It took quite a quite some time to see how big the Democratic House wave was because, for instance, California votes by mail um, very heavily. But there's a lot going on here that I think is really concerning. Like in some conceptual way should like lead to Donald Trump's impeachment and removal, but nobody's going to do that this close to an election. It's a good thing that Trump has been so bumbling that he doesn't have support from like the military, for instance, to to execute on any of this. And increasingly doesn't seem to have that much support even from Republicans to, to execute on any of it. But the fact that we really do have a president who is openly stating and openly dispatching federal agents and resources in a very strongman, authoritarian, anti-democratic kind of way. And so clearly, if anybody would give him rope to do that or it would work, he would go all in on it. I, I just feel it's worthy of more alarm than it's getting. Yes, I agree with that. You know, one thing that I think makes this hard to talk about or, or not hard to talk about, it's easy to talk about, uh, but hard to sort of understand is that there are, I think, multiple different dimensions of activity that people kind of characterize as authoritarian. And Trump is um, partakes of all of them, but they have very different kind of uh, valences and, and, they, and they exist differently in terms of like how we should understand what's going on on exactly right so one of them is this policing stuff right like you know you could read psychological literature about authoritarian personalities or just look at the rhetoric of law and order over you know the history of, of the united states and it's clear that there is a like one line of thought is that like the cops need to be in charge and you got to listen to them. Uh, there was a there was a Rod Dreher piece where he was saying his big takeaway was, you know, he looked back at the at the George Floyd footage and people were getting the whole story wrong because he would still be alive today if he hadn't resisted arrest. And clearly, like Dreher in his mind found this to be a very compelling point to me. The idea that you would just execute somebody for not immediately following police orders, like that was the issue, right? Like, like the issue was never that like he was literally just murdered totally randomly out of the blue. It's that the police officers undertook it upon themselves to kill somebody because he was being disobedient, right? So that's authoritarian. I think. And Trump Trump does that. Trump is is that kind of guy. Uh, Dara Lynn, when she was uh, writing for us, she called it law and order versus the rule of law. Um, and, and Trump is like all about that stuff. A totally different thing, but that also comes together with Trump, is highbrow, principled, conservative movement hostility to electoral democracy, where the like the fanciest best uh conservatives you can find the ones you would have the best time having lunch with uh who are like nice smart people who read good books not like weird thug cop people um they think that majority rule is a bad idea they think that because the median voters income is lower than the national mean that electoral democracy leads to income redistribution which is immoral and retards long-term economic growth so it is good and important to have counter-majoritarian institutions that preserve what they would consider uh classical liberalism right and and this has been a thing in liberal political thought for centuries that like maybe you don't want people to just vote uh because because that will lead to too much redistribution of of income and property um and trump you know trump is not that kind of guy he's not like a burkean political theorist but his whole power right like the reason he's president is that the Electoral College made him president. The reason that he has continued to be a potent force uh, after getting smacked down in the midterms is that Republicans retain a majority in the Senate. Uh, they have the backing of the federal courts. And, you know, this is a it's an anti-democratic 
thing, but it's a but it's a party thing. It's an ideological thing. And it's not personal to Donald Trump, right? Like if he passed away and Mike Pence became president, I think a lot of stuff would change in terms of wild and crazy antics. But like Republicans would continue to be pedal to the metal on the idea that like public opinion and majority rule are not normatively significant. And then you have a third thing, which is personalism. So like Trump, people are talking about maybe we should, maybe TikTok should be banned or restricted in some way. And the way a traditional president would do that is like convene the CFIUS panel and take advantage of the fact that Chuck Schumer uh, had been calling for this to make sure it's done in a bipartisan way with everybody bought in, with a lot of lawyers paying attention to what are the details, because you're trying to show that this is like real policymaking in a, in a liberal society. And Trump does the opposite of that, right? He just like says like, eh, we're going to ban it. And then everybody runs around and they're like, wait, 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 wait. Instead of banning it, well, maybe we should let Microsoft buy it. So then Trump says, well, maybe we should let Microsoft buy it. But really, uh, because I'd help them get a great price, like they should pay money to the treasury. And that's like Banana Republic type stuff, which I, I think people don't even like to say because it's not fair necessarily to, to Central America. Um, so Trump does a lot of that, too. And that's the area where he sometimes gets pushback from Republicans, right, who want to curb it on the one-man freelancing sort of aspect of, of Trumpism. But the other two are also very present and I think alarm people in a more visceral kind of way because uh, they're because they're sort of visible. But if you think about like what four more years of Trump would mean, I think you really have to like Trump specifically as opposed to some other Republican. I think you really have to worry about the integrity of the legal and regulatory process of this kind of like TikToking of everything. Uh, you you shared in, in Slack earlier today, I, I think it was you, uh, this story about like Wall Street people like don't want to donate to Trump anymore. Uh, so like, what if he comes back in like ready for vengeance, right? Like he, these are the donors who abandoned me and I proved them wrong. And now we're going to, you know, sick the SEC or the U.S. Attorney's Office and uh, on those kind of people. And it, it, it's been the dog that, I don't want to say it hasn't barked of the Trump administration, but it, it keeps being like a little less bad than I worry because other Republicans do restrain him. But the longer he stays in and the better he does, the, the less restrained he becomes. So a couple things here. I actually just this week released on on the Ezra Klein show an episode with political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and I th it's actually a very weedsy episode. So people listening here might uh, go check it out. But they have this book about it's called Let Them Eat Tweets, which I like the book a lot, and and, and the name I think undersells it a little. But but they're looking at plutocratic populism and the ways in which the sort of economic royalist wing of the GOP and the white resentment politics wing of the GOP feed into each other. And one of the arguments they make that I think gets, it's like not the sexier argument in the book. Um, so I think it's getting a, like a little bit less attention, but I, I really think it's important and, and wrote about it in my review of the book uh, as well, is that they basically argue that Trump's vividly strongman tendencies, his almost cosplaying of an authoritarian attempt is actually distracting people from the true undermining of our democracy, which is the Republican Party's unified effort to take control and keep control of American politics using pathways of minoritarian power, like the Senate the Electoral College, to some degree the House, the Supreme Court, which is dominated by Republicans because of minoritarian victories at the presidential and Senate levels, and then to um, use that control to reshape American institutions through Supreme Court rulings, through gerrymandering, etc., um, through voter ID laws, such that minoritarian strategies are ever more um, capable. Their, their sort of basic argument is at one convergence of the white identitarians and the plutocrats is both of them have lost faith in democracy. 
the plutocrats never had it, right, for all the sort of long-time political theory reasons you, you cite, Matt. But the white identitarians, they are for the first real time facing the possibility that they will not be the majority, that that sort of like white identity, like ethno-nationalist politics can't win on its own. They've often tried to restrict the franchise, but not because they couldn't win if like the small percentage of America that was non-white could vote. But now that's actually become more true. And, and I think this is really correct, that there's a certain relief I've heard like liberals express and feel because while Trump seems to want to become a strongman leader, he's not capable of doing it, or maybe institutions are not letting him do it, or the Supreme Court has put some boundaries on what he can do. And that's all true. And it's good that like Trump has not become Mil Duce. But on the other hand, it is somehow in the background almost normalized the unbelievably undemocratic situation we're in, where you know the Supreme Court, the presidency, and the Senate are all held by the party that won fewer votes. Um, that party is in many, many ways at many levels, including at the state level, making it easier to win without winning more votes, making it easier for money to like buy votes, etc. And that's really scary. So I, this is like the I, it's a slightly different point I know than the one you're making, Matt. And I take your point on on, on regulatory corruption. But I think something that just like is going to happen here um, is that people are going to pat themselves on the back a little bit if Donald Trump loses in November and say, haha, American democracy survived. When given the judicial appointments he's made and a hundred other things that have happened, if Democrats don't take seriously the need to make sure America is small d democratic and roll a lot of this back in a pretty substantial way. America as a democracy where majorities can push their preferences into policy is really going to die. And so it may be that in like a huge wipeout, Democrats can win. But in general, like it's just it just doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and I think that would be a real like a real dangerous set of political incentives to, to, to see take root. Um, and Donald Trump has been sort of like is happy to uh, benefit from them. But it's like behind him that the real patient funded work is happening to, to happen. So that I think is the, the 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 real danger here. Not that like in the background of what Trump has been doing frontally um, and sort of not being able to do frontally has been this real patient work that um, the Republican Party is going to keep working on. And like, so there's an authoritarian threat, but there's also just a minoritarianism threat that that seems to be to me seems to me to be more direct. And somehow I almost think Trump has normalized it in comparison because like that stuff works off of the norms and structures of American politics. It looks less alien than Donald Trump wanting around and be like, I'm going to delay the election. But if you make elections not really matter, uh, at least not in the way they traditionally were understood to matter by like representing the public's voice, like you've done, you've done potentially worse damage over time. I, I think the point you were sort of closing on, right? It reminds me of the fact that there have been sort of two different lines of critique of Trump. Right. Or, or of like Trump era politics. And one uses the word populism a lot. Right. And I think of, of, I think of, uh, Yasha Munk's book and, and some others. And, you know, the idea there is really, um, I would say less in terms of populism than a sort of old-fashioned idea of of the demagogue, right? The idea that somebody is going to like whip people up and topple the establishment and wreck democracy. Uh, but the other, the one that Hacker and Pearson write about, because because they wrote their other book off center years ago, when like the, the idea of Donald Trump becoming president would have been laughable then. Uh, and what they are worried about is. The opposite of populism, right? They are worried about plutocracy. And I think that there is a lot of wisdom fundamentally in their view that that is the greater worry about America. That if you look at something like um, how often it's been the case that in red states, you know, Democrats have not been able to expand Medicaid uh, because Republicans don't like it. But Medicaid expansion polls really well. So in some states, there's an initiative and referendum process. So they've gone to the voters and, and won. But then typically, Republican state legislatures, when they've been in power, have tried to sabotage implementation 
of those initiatives. Or you had the example in Wisconsin where the lame duck gerrymandered state legislature changed the constitution to take powers away from the governor. And this is like Trump never once tweeted about Wisconsin state politics there. This is just how the Republican Party at an institutional level wants to act. And it is It's not that the like Trump authoritarian populist stuff doesn't happen, but that I think focusing on it in a way takes focus away from and not just in a sense of distracts, but like thematically it's the reverse, right? Like if you get yourself so geared up to the idea that, look, we need to become we need to beat Trump and then the threat will be gone, but then we need to be real sticklers for institutional integrity and like never say anything mean about federal courts, never deride formal processes, never claim that we speak for the authentic people. I think that's going to be a real dangerous unilateral disarmament for Democrats who are going to need to, at certain points, press the case outside the formal boundaries of the political system, that there is something normatively wrong with a gerrymandered state legislature changing the rules ex post so that their power can't be checked, right? That's like, um, that. that's when people need to be out in the streets. It's when you need some populism, right? Like pressure needs to be brought to bear because the rules of the system have been rigged. And, you know, I mean, this has always been an anxiety of mine about Biden, an anxiety of mine about the whole literature on Trump and democracy, because- there's just there's so much more happening than Donald Trump. I think it's a good place to close it, but I think that's right. There's yeah, always let's wrap so much it up. more happening than Donald Trump. You know what? You know what is happening that's not Donald Trump that I I unconscionably forgot to mention is that I have a book uh, that is coming out and I'm trying to get pre-orders for. It is called One Billion Americans. It is amazing. It is blurbed by Ezra Klein uh, as well as many other superstar figures. Um, and you know if you if you buy it and uh, you tweet your proof of purchase, I am going to enter you into my drawing for one lucky One Billion Americans pre-orderer to select a white paper of the week that I will subject Darren Jane to. Um, And uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, Thanks, Ezra. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.